Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. This program is being pre-recorded for Friday, June 29th, 2018. This is Tuesday evening, and I'm sitting here alone talking to myself. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I am going to present a pair of short essays from Clifton Emmerheiser, which were originally titled, The Only True Adam of Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27, and Genesis 2, verse 7, parts 1 and 2. Some of the comments and data that I may add to these articles as we proceed. I have already discussed at length in various podcasts and articles at Christagenia, but especially in part one of my own Pragmatic Genesis series. Clifton himself has another article on this topic, which he had written some time later, titled Adam in the Hebrew in Genesis. And in that initial segment of Pragmatic Genesis, I expanded on that article. I am not going to get into much depth, on Hebrew grammar this evening, which is the main topic of Clifton's other paper and that first part of Pragmatic Genesis. But here I will only say that adding a preposition or a definite article to a noun does not by itself make that noun represent something different from what it represents without the preposition or article. The people who push the idea of two distinct Adamic creations attempt to do just that, and by it they display their own ignorance, a very serious ignorance of the way that Hebrew grammar works. They don't know it, but they make themselves look like fools when anyone with any knowledge of Hebrew grammar examines their theory. This evening, I am making this particular presentation for two reasons. First, because we are traveling this weekend to the National Conference of the League of the South. And secondly, so I needed to pre-record a program, right? And secondly, because even to this day, there are certain so-called pastors in Christian identity who cling to this fallacy of an eighth-day creation, and they have the nerve to ridicule us for refuting it. One of those will also be at this conference, even if I shouldn't probably call him a pastor. The fools do not even bother to offer a discussion, and they really do not know what they are ridiculing. In the end, it is they who shall be ridiculed. So here we shall begin with the only true Adam of Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 and chapter 2 verse 7 part 1 by Clifton Emmerheiser. He begins by saying, It's simply amazing how within the Israel identity movement (coughs) there exists a conglomeration of confused dogmas seemingly without an end. It appears like everyone wants to start his own personal pretzel factory, twisting the scriptures whichever way they desire. Whoever dreamed up the sixth and eighth day creation theory should win a blue ribbon at some kind of prevarication fraternity 
for it simply is not true. For those not familiar with the 6th and 8th day creation theory, its proponents claim that the non-white races were created on the 6th day, and that the white atom kind was formed on the 8th day. Yet search the entire Bible and nowhere does it speak of an 8th day creation. As a matter of fact, scripture points out in no uncertain terms that the creation ended at the end of the sixth day. It seems to both Clifton and I that those who seek to insert the creation of other races into scripture, when there is no specific mention of their being created, are purposely seeking to apologize for the existence of those other races by imagining that Yahweh created them and doing their best to squeeze them into our Bible. Yahweh created donkeys and horses, but he didn't create mules. Simply because something exists doesn't mean that Yahweh would take credit for its existence. Man must take credit for his own sin. What is more incredible, however, are the clear contradictions made by the 6th and 8th day creation crowd. On one hand, they will profess that Adam means to be ruddy or to be able to blush, etc. But on the other hand, they claim that the man of Genesis chapter 1, who is called Adam, represents non-whites. He is called Adam, the word for man in Genesis chapter 1 is Adam in Hebrew. It can't represent non-whites because it means to be ruddy or to be able to blush. That is only the beginning of their contradictions. The truth is that Yahweh only created one race, the Adamic race, and all others are mere corruptions of his original creation. The knowledge of that corruption is found in the accounts of the fallen angels, the symbols which are used in prophecy, and the parables of Christ. We have also discussed that at length in a series of podcasts, five of them, in Pragmatic Genesis. But for now, we will follow Clifton's original papers. So he continues by saying, <coughs> We will start this paper by referring to Josephus on the creation. Here Clifton is citing Josephus's Antiquities, Book 1, Chapter 1, the first two paragraphs. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But when the earth did not come into sight, but was covered with thick darkness, and the wind moved upon its surface, God commanded that there should be light. And when that was made, he considered the whole mass and separated the light and the darkness. And the name he gave to one was night, <clears throat> and the other he called day. And he named the beginning of light and the time of rest, the evening and the morning. And this was indeed the first day. But Moses said it was one day, the cause of which I am able to give even now. But because I have promised to give such reasons for all things in a treatise by itself, I shall put off its exposition until that time. 
After this, on the second day, he placed the heaven over the whole world and separated it from the other parts, and he determined it should stand by itself. He also placed a crystalline firmament around it and put it together in a manner agreeable to the earth and fitted it for giving moisture and rain and for avoiding the advantage of dews, D-E-W-S, like the morning dew. On the third day he appointed the dry land to appear with the sea itself round about it and on the very same day he made the plants and the seeds to spring out of the earth. On the fourth day he adorned the heaven with the sun, the moon, and the other stars, and appointed them their motions and courses, that the vicissitudes of the seasons might be clearly signified. And on the fifth day he produced the living creatures, both those that swim and those that fly, the former in the sea, the latter in the air. He also sorted them as to society and mixture for procreation, and that their kinds might increase and multiply. On the sixth day he created the four-footed beasts and made them male and female. On the same day he also formed man. Accordingly, Moses says, that in just six days the world and all that is therein was made, and that the seventh day was a rest and a release from the labor of such operations. Whence it is that we celebrate a rest from our labors on that day, and call it the Sabbath, which word denotes rest in the Hebrew tongue. Moreover, Moses, after the seventh day was over, begins to talk philosophically, and concerning the formation of man, says thus, that God took dust from the ground and formed man, and inserted in him a spirit and a soul. This man was called Adam, which in the Hebrew tongue signifies one that is red, because he was formed out of red earth, and that's a serious error, and we see how old it is. We will talk about that red earth compounded together, for of that kind is virgin and true earth. God also presented the living creatures when he had made them according to their kinds, both male and female, to Adam, who gave them those names by which they are still called. But when he saw that Adam had no female companion, no society, for there was no such created, and that he wondered at the other animals which were male and female, he laid him asleep and took away one of his ribs, and out of it formed the woman, whereupon Adam knew her when she was brought to him, and acknowledged that she was made out of himself flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, and all that we see in Genesis chapter 2. Here at the end of this citation of Josephus, Clifton has a note in relation to the red earth. Instead of red earth, Josephus should have rendered it blood red, red sort, 
as Dom is blood. Dom, D-A-M in Hebrew. In truth, <clears throat> when languages develop naturally, the shorter words called roots or stems by linguists are the original words and the basic building blocks for more complex words. So the longer compounds with more complex meanings are derived from them. In the Hebrew dictionary, which is included with the original Strong's Concordance, the author usually broke the entries for each word down by the parts of speech and sometimes for other reasons. That is because the Masoretic rabbis use different vowel points for the parts of speech or sometimes to distinguish uses of a word. One example of this is Adam, Odem, and Edom, which are actually all the same word in Paleo-Hebrew, but each were given different vowel points by the Masoretic rabbis. Strong assigned these three nouns different numbers for that reason, and also assigned different numbers for Adam as a common noun, where it was simply translated as man, Adam as a verb, and Adam as an adjective. But in the original and ancient Hebrew, which did not use vowel points, for all of these uses of the word, it was spelled only one way right to left, Aleph Daleth Mem, which in English is A-D-M, and that second vowel is filled in so that we could pronounce it in English. So in Strong's lexicon, the word Adam has entries at 119 through 124. Then at 125, there was a word Adamdam, which is reddish, and at 127, Adama, which is red soil. The word, the root word for Adamdam and Adama is correctly listed by Strong as 119, Adam, since the shorter word is not derived from the longer. And here we see that even Josephus did not completely understand this. But here we must also ask, why does Adam mean ruddy or reddish in the first place? The only proper answer could be that the Hebrew word for blood is dam, D-M, or D-A-M in English. Strong number 1818. But not even Strong himself made that connection in his lexicon. Neither did Josephus. The word Adam must have been derived from the word Dom, and it means ruddy or blood red because Dom means blood. But in spite of the fact that we do not agree with this passage from Josephus in its entirety, Clifton chose to begin his essay in this way in order to demonstrate that Josephus, a native Hebrew speaker, who came from a family of Levitical priests, did not interpret the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 1 
to be a different, earlier creation than the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. We cannot agree with everything Josephus said about Genesis, and the Pharisees had indeed introduced some errors into their interpretations. But Clifton wanted to show that an ancient Hebrew reader was not compelled to imagine that it was an eighth-day creation. Now we shall continue with Clifton. Probably the most significant item we should consider is the fact that the creation of the earth with all of its creatures including the creation of Adam and Eve is not in chronological order. Just stop and think for a moment. Adam man was created approximately 7,500 years ago. That would be the more accurate Septuagint chronology. While some of the more distant stars are billions of light years away, and how many more billions of light years ago these distant stars came into existence, we do not know. When one observes these distant stars, one is looking billions of light years into the past. That's the conventional wisdom anyway. I don't necessarily agree with it. All one need to do is check Genesis chapter 1 verses 14 through 19 and one will discover that the sun and the moon were not created until the fourth day. How then could the grass, herb yielding seed and fruit grow which is recorded to have been created on the third day without the aid of the sun? Whatever kind of day Genesis is talking about it's surely not the 24-hour day that we are familiar with. In spite of all this evidence, Eli James still insists that Genesis is written in chronological order. The answer is neither Genesis in the Bible nor Josephus' account of creation is in chronological order. Once this fact is firmly established, we can begin to make some order out of the creation story. And regardless of what you want to think about the conventional claims in regard to the universe and the age of the stars or their distance from one another, Clifton is certainly correct that in the creation account, the sun, moon, and stars are not mentioned as having been created until the fourth day a day after the grass, herbs, and fruit trees. So there is a serious problem if we insist that Genesis is a scientific treatise or a perfectly chronological account of creation. Once it is realized that the word day can also refer to an age, that exacerbates the problem. The sun by which plants live was not created until the fourth age of Genesis. So we see that the creation account in Genesis cannot be interpreted literally. And instead it must be an allegory, a parable meant to convey a particular message apart from the science of creation itself. Clifton continues, The sixth and eighth day creationists make a big thing out of Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 saying male and female created he them claiming it is speaking of the creation of the other races they then point out that Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 
it mentions the formation of the man as opposed to the creation in 127 insisting that it is a separate separate and a second act of the Almighty at such an endeavor they declare that the one was created while the other was formed thus they try to show a contrast between the two accounts at Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 and that of Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 but if one will notice Josephus says on the same sixth day he also formed man and he uses the term formation for Adam on the sixth day and additionally speaks of the four-footed beast being created male and female on that same day we don't know what kind of manuscripts Josephus might have had at hand but from Josephus's own words we can determine that he definitely understood it to be a single account now Clifton is forced to interpret Josephus in English I would not have presented quite that same argument however it is nonetheless evident that Josephus believed in only one creation of man and not two again continuing with Clifton a footnote in the Craigle edition which is standard in any complete edition of Josephus by Whiston because they're Whiston's footnotes makes the following comment on the creation story of page 25 since Josephus in his preface section 4 says that Moses wrote some things enigmatically some allegorically and the rest in plain words since in his account of the first chapter of Genesis and the first three verses of the second he gives us no hints of any mystery at all but when he here comes to verse 4 etc he says that Moses after the seventh day was over began to talk philosophically it is not very improbable that he understood the rest of the second and the third chapters in some enigmatical or allegorical or philosophical sense the change of the name of God just at this place meaning from Genesis 2 3 to Genesis 2 4 is a transition from Elohim to Jehovah Elohim this is Whiston's words right from God to Lord God in the Hebrew Samaritan and Septuagint does also not a little favor some change in the narration or construction and of course we will comment on that but first Clifton responds to the note and he says <clears throat> we see several things worth observing from this footnote it is noteworthy to observe that Josephus recognizes that in chapter 2 of Genesis that Moses is using philosophical reasoning concerning the creation of Adam man the definition of philosophy is critical study of fundamental beliefs we're not talking about Greek philosophy here which leads into sophism so if Moses is using philosophical reasoning at this point concerning the creation of man he is not recording the creation of a second kind of Adam as the sixth and eighth day creationists so loudly proclaim and when the creation story is not given in a chronological order how much more enigmatical or allegorical can it get 
Eli James is exceedingly incorrect in proclaiming that Genesis is written in chronological order. Actually, he's a fool, but that's another story. Eli James also contends that the creation of Genesis chapter 1 was by the Elohim, whom he designates as fallen angels, and that Yahweh formed Adam at Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Thus, and, and actually if that were true, then the Elohim created the sun, the moon, the fallen angels created the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the plants. That, that's ridiculous. But at one time, at one time, until he realized how stupid it was, Eli was making that claim. And I'll comment on that again shortly. Thus, his flawed premise is that the fallen angels created the non-Adamic races, along with the sun, earth, moon, stars, animals, birds, and fishes. He then points to the authorized King James Version, and shows that the Tetragrammaton doesn't appear until chapter 2, especially verse 7, which says, And the Lord, Yahweh, God, formed man of the dust of the ground. Had Eli James ever checked the Septuagint, he would have found that the term Lord, which should be Yahweh, is not only in verse 7, is, I'm sorry, is not in verse 7, only God, or Elohim, then God formed the man, dust from the earth, and that's true. So neither Josephus nor the Septuagint supports Eli James's sixth and eighth day creation theory. Further, checking Strong's concordance under God, we see that Elohim, the same word appearing at Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28, is the predominant word used to refer to Yahweh all throughout the Bible, used far more often than the singular El. With this, Eli James's theory collapses entirely. And of course it does, but there are many more. I would say that honestly, because Wesley Swift and Bertrand Compare and others of their time had promoted this harebrained six and eight day creation theory, that the majority of those old school Christian identity people teachers, pastors, writers, still promote the six and eight day creation theory. But it is harebrained, without a doubt. It's not scripture. Clifton is correct that kurios does not appear in the Greek of the Septuagint until Genesis chapter 2 verse 8, and only theos in chapter 2 verse 7. However, I am not going to address the errors of Eli James here beyond what Clifton presents. Clifton wrote these papers around the time that we had to separate ourselves from Eli, who is actually Joseph November, that's his real name, for his heresies concerning Genesis and other subjects. <coughs> Eli himself changes his positions often, and I do not even know or care what it is that he professes today. However, his arguments at one time were representative of the professions of many older identity Christian pastors or writers who follow similar heresies even until now, which is pretty sad. Before continuing, I will only say that at one time, what we know as Genesis a word which appears nowhere in scripture, 
<coughs> was actually more than one book or scroll. The proof of that is at the beginning of what is now Genesis chapter 5, where it opens with the words, This is the book of the generations of Adam. That's the top of the scroll. The scrolls which now comprise Genesis were put together by ancient scribes, but not necessarily by Moses. It can be argued effectively that Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 3 were a separate scroll, which we can call the creation scroll, and Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 through the end of chapter 4 was another scroll. A third scroll began with chapter 5. The language of the first scroll is different, as it does not contain the tetragrammaton, representing the name Yahweh, for that reason. Then, for that same reason, we see in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth, when they were created, in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. And that day was already described in the first scroll, which is now Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 3. So if one wants to think that the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 is a different man, then in order to be consistent, one must think that the heavens and earth of Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 are a different heavens and a different earth. But, if the heavens and earth were already created when this was written, then so was Adam already created when this was written. And we see a recounting of that part of creation in more detail. But this is not describing a separate creation, or we would need an eighth-day heavens, and an eighth-day earth, and eighth-day plants and herbs, as well as an eighth-day Adam. However, it says in Exodus chapter 20, and it is repeated elsewhere in Scripture, that in six days Yahweh made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. There are other cognitive discrepancies in the claims of the eighth-day creation people, but we will wait to discuss them later. For now, Clifton continues to expose Eli James. Actually, the idea that the world was created by angels which is what Eli James is teaching here, is a Gnostic doctrine according to the Anti-Nicene Fathers, Volume 1, Chapter 11. This is actually from Book 3, Chapter 11 of Irenaeus's Against Heresies. And it states, But according to Marcion and those like him, neither was the world made by him, meaning by Yahweh. Nor did he come to his own things, but to those of another. <clears throat> and according to certain of the Gnostics, this world was made by angels and not by the word of God. But according to the followers of Valentinus, 
The world was not made by him, but by the demiurge. That's a Gnostic heresy. However, Eli James, Clifton says, designates fallen angels, and Eli credits them also with the creation of the non-Adamic races. With that last part, we would agree that the origin of the other races is with the so-called fallen angels, only that the account is not found in Genesis, and they are really a corruption rather than a creation. Clifton is responding to something which Eli had written, but I cannot recall what that may have been. At first, Eli was a proponent of the traditional 6th and 8th day creation theory, which holds that the other races are the Adam, or man, of Genesis chapter 1. Then, after working with me for a while, Eli began to promote a clown from the 19th century named Thomas Davies who held that there were different races in the man of Genesis 1.26 as opposed to the man of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Once Eli was shown how stupid that argument really was, he changed his position a third time to insist that the other races were the beasts of the earth of Genesis chapter 1, verse 25 a position which we have also thoroughly discredited. But Eli will do anything he can to squeeze a nigger, a street shitter, or a squat monster into the Bible and the creation of Yahweh. That is his real agenda. And then, while he says they are beasts in in relation to the Old Testament, he claims they're men in relation to the New Testament. What a Jew he is. Continuing with Clifton. Now there may be some who think that Josephus was a bad fig Jew, and that we shouldn't use him as a reference. But I would have anyone of this opinion know that Josephus was a pure-blooded Levite on both sides of his family, which is, I am certain, absolutely true. Then citing Josephus's Life, his short autobiographical work. Paragraph 1. The family from which I am derived is not an ignoble one, but has descended all along from the priests, and as nobility among several people is of a different origin, so with us to be of the sacerdotal dignity is an indication of the splendor of the family. Now, I am not only sprung from a sacerdotal family in general, but from the first of the twenty-four courses. And, as among us, there is not only a considerable difference between one family of each course and another, I am of the chief family of that first course also. Nay, further, by my mother, I am of the royal blood, for the children of Hasmonius, from whom that family was derived, had both the office of the high priesthood and the dignity of a king for a long time together. Actually, it was the high priest Alexander Janaeus. At the turn of from the 2nd to the 1st century BC, like a hundred years before the birth of Christ, he was the first of the Hasmoneans to call himself a king. I will accordingly set down my progenitors in order, 
My grandfather's father was named Simon, with the addition of Sellus. He lived at the same time with that son of Simon the high priest, who first of all the high priests was named Hyrcanus. This Simon Sellus had nine sons, one of whom was Matthias, called Ephlius. He married the daughter of Jonathan the high priest, which Jonathan was the first of the sons of Hasmonius, who was high priest, and was the brother of Simon the high priest also. Not only, Clifton says, not only was Josephus of pure blood, but growing up, he was a child prodigy. We see this in Josephus's life, paragraph 2, as follows. I was myself brought up with my brother, whose name was Matthias, for he was my own brother by both father and mother, and I made mighty proficiency in the improvements of my learning, and appeared to have a both a great memory and understanding. Moreover, when I was a child, and about fourteen years of age, I was commended by all for the love I had to learning, on which account the high priests and the principal men of the city came then frequently to me together, in order to know my opinion about the accurate understanding of points of the law. There was no reason for Josephus to lie about his own lineage. He himself did not fully understand the difference between the Edomites and Israelites of Judea, and he actually thought very well of many of the members of the family of Herod, whom he knew to be Edomites. Josephus, in the typical fashion of the times, was quite the egalitarian, and in his time the separation of the Pharisees was only a religious separation, not really a racial one. So where Joseph, Josephus talks about the Edomites and their presence in Judea and Herod's being an Edomite, he's really simply being honest, but he's not condemning them because he himself was also quite egalitarian. And that's evident throughout his writing. He didn't have any um, chagrin. He, he didn't have any ill feelings towards the Edomites. When he mentioned Herod was an Edomite, he was only making a statement in fact. He mentioned it four times of Herod or his family and of others, but he was only making a statement in fact. Clifton continues, It is important, then, to understand that Josephus understood there was but a single Adam, and that Adam was formed on the sixth day of creation. It is also significant to comprehend that Josephus recognized philosophic allegory when he saw it, and he followed suit with Moses from Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, to chapter 4. Actually, I would be chapter 2, verse 4 to chapter 4, in my opinion. When people are spoken of as trees, <clears throat> it can't get much more allegorical than that. In other words, the trees were not trees, and the serpent was not a snake, and what Eve did eat wasn't consumed through her mouth. So it is safe to acknowledge Josephus's accountability or reliability. Now Clifton departs from Josephus, 
and he spends the remainder of this paper and the opening part of the next discussing the image of God. This is important because in Genesis chapter 1 we are told that man was made in that image. But we are not told this in Genesis chapter 2. If one claims, quite foolishly, if one claims that the Genesis chapter 2 man is a different man, a separate creation, then one cannot say that this supposed eighth day man is made in the image of God, something which is only attributed to the man created on the sixth day. So Clifton continues under the subtitle, The All-Important Image. It is a very serious assertion by the proponents of the sixth and eighth day creation theory to claim that the non-white races were created on the sixth day at Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 27. It is serious because according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 and Colossians 1.15 Yahshua is said to be in the image of God. Are we to believe that the non-white races are in that image? Does that make our Redeemer also non-white? How absurd the thought then citing 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. There's a few things going on here. Paul's saying that the man was created. What sort of men is Paul referring to? Is he referring to non-Adamic races? Or is he referring to people of the race of Adam? Writing to the Corinthians, he's writing to Dorian Greeks. He already told them in chapter 10 that they were Israelites. That they were Israel according to the flesh. Paul's not talking to grease monkeys here. He's talking to Adamic men descendants of Seth, descendants of Noah, descendants of Jacob Israel, descendants of that Genesis chapter 2 Adam, and he's telling them that they're in the image of God. And he's telling us that they were created, not merely formed. The arguments of the sixth and eighth day creation turkeys are comical, but it's sad that grown men can believe such stupid shit. It really is sad. Here Paul was not really talking about Yahshua, but he was talking about man in general, in his own times. But we see that the connection is sure, where Paul must be referring to the Genesis 1 man, while all white men must have descended from Seth, the son of the Genesis chapter 2 man. So if there are two creations of Adam, the entire Bible is a confused lie. Throw it away. But fortunately for us, Josephus did not believe there were two creations of man, and neither did Paul, so neither should we.
Clifton now moves to his next citation, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And this is, of course, speaking of Christ directly. And now we will present Clifton's final citation, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Speaking of God, who has delivered us from the power from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature (coughs) now Clifton responds to his citations the term man at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 7 can only be speaking of Adam man which would be the same image of Yahshua born of Mary 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 8 and 9 surely are not speaking of the non-white races 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 then enforces the same idea as 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 7 Ditto for Colossians 1.15. Where do the 6th and 8th day creation advocates come up with all of those preposterous ideas? This subject is much too important to be passed over lightly and will be continued in the only true Adam of Genesis 1.26-27 and 2.7 part 2. And we will immediately commence with that second part of Clifton's essay. However, however, we will omit the portion of the first paragraph, which only repeats his original introduction. Then he says, we will begin this paper at the point where in part one we started to consider the importance of the image at Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. And now Clifton repeats his subtitle and his admonition concerning the claims of the Eighth-day creation proponents in relation to the image of God. And he repeats his citations of Paul's epistles, which he gave at the end of part one, along with his final conclusion, things which we will not repeat again here. Basically, Clifton makes the assertion that if the other non-white races are the man, the small a Adam, which is described as being created in Genesis chapter 1. Then they were created in the same image that Christ was created. But if the Adam of Genesis 2-7 is a separate eighth-day creation, as they assert, then he does not have that image. And it gets worse than that. We will speak about it later. The white nations which came from Noah were descended from the Adam of Genesis chapter 2. So if that Adam was a creation separate from the Genesis 1 Adam, then Christ is in the image of the other races and not of the white race. This is the quandary to which the silly so-called 6th and 8th day creation theory leads. 
So now Clifton proceeds by discussing some of these implications. And he says, W. E. Vine, in his Expository of New Testament Words, comments partly on pages 264 and 5 as follows. Image, icon, the Greek word icon, icon, denotes an image of the descendants of Adam as bearing his image, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, of man as he was created as a being a visible representation of God, citing 1 Corinthians 11.7, which Clifton just cited, of Christ in relation to God, citing 2 Corinthians 4.4, which Clifton just cited. The image of God, essentially and absolutely the perfect expression and representation of the archetype God the Father, in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God, which Clifton also just cited. Then he says, from the enhanced Strong's lexicon, we have the following description of the Greek word image. The word icon, which appears 23 times in the New Testament, and every time the King James Version translates icon as image. And the definition is an image, a figure, a likeness, an image of the things, such as the heavenly things, used of the moral likeness of renewed men to God, the image of the Son of God into which true Christians are transformed, is likeness not only to the heavenly body, but also to the most holy and blessed state of mind which Christ possesses. The image of one, one in whom the likeness of anyone is seen, applied to man on account of his power of command, to Christ on account of his divine nature and absolute moral excellence. I wouldn't agree with half of Strong's definitions there, but we'll continue with Clifton. Now, in response to this definition of the Greek word for image, Clifton correctly exclaims, the non-white races hardly fit this portrayal. Then he continues with another citation on the word. The theological word book, word book of the Old Testament on page 768 says in part, man was made in God's image and likeness, and the, Greek, the Hebrew words are selem and demut, which is then explained as his having dominion over God's creation as vice-regent. Psalm chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, is similar, citing man's God-given glory, honor, and rule. God's image, obviously, does not consist in man's body, which was formed from earthly matter, but in his spiritual, intellectual, moral likeness to God, from whom his animating breath came. But it was seen in perfection in Christ and will be made perfect in us when salvation is complete, citing Hebrews chapter 2. Clifton says, Note, 
we must correct the theological word book of the Old Testament here. Inasmuch as Yahshua did in fact take on Adam's fleshly body which was formed from earthly matter when he was born of Mary. And aside from Clifton's comments, I would argue that the image of God is not the nature of his flesh, but of his spirit. This we see in first, first in Hebrews chapter 1, where Paul of Tarsus wrote of Yahweh God that Christ was the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. If Yahweh is the invisible God, as Paul also called him in Romans, in Colossians, in 1 Timothy, and in Hebrews chapter 11, then the image, the express image of his person, the image must be something other than a physical appearance, which we would instead consider to be his likeness. Then in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon we read, for God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. If the Genesis to Adam has both the immortal spirit, as well as the image of God in which the Genesis 1 Adam was made, then they are both the same man, and there was really only one creation of man, not two. Clifton, referring to the reference in the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, now discusses the passages it cited in regard to the image of God. Hebrews chapter 2 verse, verses 6 through 11 <coughs> identify the true and only Adam of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 thusly. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Paul's quoting the Psalms. If the Adamic man that the children of Israel descended from, that Genesis chapter 2, Adam, was set over the works of the hands of God, then he must be the same Adam that was created in Genesis chapter 1. Because the Genesis chapter 2, Adam, was not given explicit dominion over the works of God. Only the Genesis chapter 1 Adam was. Therefore, the only way that the Genesis 2 Adam has dominion over the works of God is to be the same Adam as the Genesis 1 Adam. <clears throat> Otherwise, the Bible contradicts itself in every way. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Yahshua, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of Yahweh should taste death for every man. For it became him, 
for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies, and they who are sanctified, are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Clifton cited this because it must be noted that Christ being in the same image in which the Genesis chapter 1 man was created, and that only the Genesis 1 man was set over the works of the creation of God, Christ must have descended from that Genesis chapter 1 man, and therefore the six-day man must be the Adamic man, the same man descended from Adam and Seth. Now he continues with the language of Genesis chapters 5 and 9. Relate the descendants of Adam to the Genesis chapter 1 man. Not only was Adam in Yahweh Elohim's image, but it states in Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 and chapter 9 verse 6 that Adam's offspring are in that same image, thusly. Genesis 5.3 And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Genesis 9.6 Whoso sheddeth any man's blood by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God he made man. Clifton notes that in each instance man in this verse is Strong's number 120 the word Adam if Genesis chapter 1 is talking about other races, then Genesis 9-6 must be a warning that the sons of Noah shouldn't kill anybody of the other races because they're made in the image of God. And again, the Bible leads to many contradictions. If you accept this harebrained sixth and eighth day creation theory, Clifton's point is that the image of God is not mentioned in relation to the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2, but only in relation to the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 1. If they are not the same Adam, how does the race descended from the Adam of Genesis chapter 2 have that image? Now he continues. <clears throat> A better than usual explanation is found in the Antinicene Fathers, volume 1. This is actually from Irenaeus's Against Heresies, Book 5. Chapter 16, Paragraph 2, on this topic. Let me say that when you search, and, and I use the same software that Clifton uses for this purpose because I got my copy from Clifton, who got his copy in turn from someone else. When you search the volumes of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, they don't return to you what writer and what work and what book. You have to scroll up and scroll up and scroll up and look for it. And I don't think Clifton is really aware of that, to be honest. I, I don't know if he ever really did it. He always cites volume and chapter. And you really have to do a lot of scrolling to see that this is Irenaeus's Against Heresies, that it's book five of Irenaeus Against Heresies, and sometimes there's five or six writers in a book and six or eight chapters, sixteens, in one volume. So you really got to look and go out of your way to find 
the exact writer any exact work which is being cited and it's a pain in the ass it really is but I'm not so certain Clifton's aware of the necessity that it be done when you're citing these volumes so maybe someday when he gets home from the hospital Yahweh willing I'll be able to explain that to him Citing Irenaeus's Against Heresies, Book 5, Chapter 16, Paragraph 2. And then again, this word was manifested when the word of God was made man, assimilating himself to man, and man to himself, so that by means of his resemblance to the Son, man might become precious to the Father. For in long times past it was said that man was created after the image of God, but it was not actually shown, for the word was as yet invisible, after whose image man was created. I would use, I would say that all of that's true, except that I would use that word likeness, because the image, I believe, represents something else. The mind of God, the mind, the moral capability, the spiritual attributes of God. And not necessarily necessarily the physical likeness, but that's okay. I'm not going to split too many hairs over that. For the word was as yet invisible, after whose image man was created. Wherefore also he did easily lose the similitude, that would be the likeness, I believe. When, however, the word of God became flesh, he confirmed both these things. For he both showed forth the image truly, since he himself became what was his image, and he reestablished the similitude after a sure manner, by assimilating man to the invisible father through the means of the visible word. And Irenaeus actually really did very good there, I believe, <clears throat> because the likeness of God wasn't apparent until the coming of Christ as an Adamic man, even though it should have been apparent through the Adamic race. Sadly, too many Adamic people themselves would argue with that and try to squeeze in a nigger or a street shitter or a squat monster. Clifton says, another excellent passage from the Anti-Nicene Fathers is found in Volume 1. This is actually in the Epistle of Ignatius to the Antiochians, which is considered spurious. In chapter 2, the true doctrine re respecting God in Christ. For Moses, the faithful servant of God, when he said, The Lord thy God is one Lord, thus proclaimed that it was only one God, did yet forthwith confess also our Lord when he said, the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah fire and brimstone from the Lord. And again, and God said, Let us make man after our image. And so God made man, after the image of God made he him. And further, in the image of God he made man, and that the Son of God was to be made man. Moses shows when he says, A prophet shall the Lord raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Now Clifton responds to his citations. This not only shows that, unlike today's sixth and eighth day creationists, 
The Anti-Nicene Fathers understood that the man created at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, was the same man, Adam, at Genesis 2-7. <coughs> but they also fathomed <coughs> the seriousness of the subject of the image of God by citing, A prophet shall Yahweh raise up to you of your brethren like unto me. The reference is to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And it's also repeated in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 7. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord thy God will raise up to thee, unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him you shall hearken. And then in Acts chapter 3, verse 22. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, these are the words of Peter, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him you shall hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And then in Acts chapter 7 verse 37, these being the words of Stephen, Stephen the martyr, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him you shall hear. Clifton says, while these passages don't say in the image of Yahweh Elohim, it is highly implied in the phrase, like unto me. The prophet spoken of here is no other than our Messiah. If then the Messiah was in the image of Yahweh, then too are the brethren. The theory that the non-white races are in the image of God, which the sixth and eighth day creationists promote, is pure tommy rot. And I've heard all their convoluted arguments, and I don't buy a single word of it. While Moses meant to refer to himself where he said that the prophet, which Clifton admits later, this is a reference where he said that the prophet would be like unto him. This is a reference to both Joshua and to Christ, who would be like unto me. It nevertheless shows that since Christ was in the image of God, Moses must also have been in the image of the Genesis chapter 1 Adam. And therefore, all white men are descended from the Genesis chapter 1 Adam, which is the only Adam of creation. Clifton continues, While Joshua partially fulfilled the office of the prophet for Israel, concurring to a degree with Deuteronomy 18.15, it was fully implemented in Joshua by our Messiah, I'm sorry, it was fully implemented in Yahshua, our Messiah. According to Matthew 21.11, Matthew 21.46, Luke 6, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6 verse 4, Luke chapter 7 verse 16, and John chapters 4 verse 19, and 7 verse 40. The Messiah alone was like unto Moses the prophet citing Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 10 where it says and there arose not a prophet 
since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So while Joshua fulfilled the type for that prophet, it was only Christ that fully fulfilled the prophecy. That's Clifton's argument. Thus Christ, the anointed, was the prophet spoken of here, who was like unto me, meaning Moses. Thus the prediction then, was fu- which was fulfilled 1,500 years after it was uttered, is expressly applied by Peter in Acts chapter 3, and Stephen in Acts chapter 7, in Joshua the Christ as fully answering the description given of him. And part of that dis- depiction says, like unto me. Who is it then? that has the authority to remove the image of Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 from the first and second Adam, who is Christ, and apply that image to the non-white races. Wittingly or unwittingly, it is a blatant blasphemy. It would be well to read the four verses following Deuteronomy 18.15. According to all that thou desirest of Yahweh thy Elohim in Horeb in the day of assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God, or Elohim as Clifton prefers to write, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And Yahweh said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass, that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Clifton says, It was necessary, therefore, that the one who was to sustain the character of a prophet like unto Moses should be inspired, and receive an unmistakable commission to that office. Yahshua to Christ laid claim both to the inspiration and a divine legation. And Clifton citing Isaiah 61.1, Luke 4.18 and 19, John 8.28, John 12.49, John 14.24. I won't take the time to go through all the scriptures, but Yahshua Christ certainly did claim to be inspired by God to preach the gospel to the poor, to preach to release the captives from the prison house. That's what Clifton is citing in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. All the attributes which the Messiah was to have that we see in Isaiah, Christ had mentioned in Luke and claimed to have. Clifton says to divest the Messiah of the image at Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 is to rob him of his commission. For the phrase still says like unto me, meaning the Adamic Moses. The effect of the so-called, and these are my notes, the effect of the so-called <clears throat> sixth and eighth day creation theory is that the non-white races are made in the image and likeness of God, and that they have been given dominion by God over all the earth. While the white man descended from Adam has only the spirit of God, 
and was made only to be a farmer. That's incredible. Go read Genesis chapter 2. Compare it to the commission in Genesis chapter 1. If we, meaning our white race, aren't both Adams, then we have no dominion. If we have no dominion, then other people should have dominion over us. We should only be farmers for niggers and squat monsters. They should be our boss. They should have rule over us for the entire duration of the creation. These six and eight day creation clowns, they don't even know what they're saying. They're just being stupid. We can continue with the contradictions, but that alone should be sufficient to discredit the entire idea. Clifton continues. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 say, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in his last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now Clifton warns the fools, who insist on the notion of an eighth-day creation. Returning to Deuteronomy chapter 18, one verse further, we read, But the prophet, which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. Finally, under the subtitle, The Chromosome Image, Clifton states, in every respect, our Yahshua, the Messiah, was a perfect but ordinary man. Being such, every cell in his body was made up of 46 chromosomes, as with any healthy person. In the conception process, each parent contributes 23 chromosomes in matching pairs. Therefore, it was only possible <clears throat> for Mary, the mother of Yahshua, to supply half of the chromosomes necessary for a normal child. The other 23 chromosomes of necessity came from Yahweh himself, however not by sexual intercourse, as other men were after Adam. To be perfect genetically, Yahshua's DNA would have to be flawless in his pedigree, as Noah's was and all the patriarchs were. While Clifton did not get into all the details here, around the same time, Eli James had been promoting another clown named Ron Wyatt, who concocted this crazy story that Christ had only 24 chromosomes, 23 from his mother and one from God. For any so-called human being, life would be physically impossible with only 24 chromosomes. But some people will believe anything strange or novel, while others will teach such things for their own profit. Eli falls into both categories. Clifton continues, Once the chromosome factor is considered, 
We can begin to understand why the image at Genesis 1, 26 through 27 is so very important and must be applied properly. And without a fleshly image, our Redeemer becomes no Redeemer at all. Also, without the chromosomes of Mary, he could not claim to be our kinsman Redeemer. I've heard grown men who claim to be teachers in Israel declare that the genetics of the children come only from the father. I would have you know, while you need to check this out for yourself, the female contributes equally as much to the genetic makeup of a child as the male. Sadly, today the chromosomes of conception are being joined in unmatched pairs, violating the biblical law of kind after kind and the seventh commandment. This concludes Clifton's essays on the subject. He later wrote a short paper on the grammar aspect of the argument, Adam in the Hebrew Genesis. But he never wrote a part three in this series. Surely it should not have been necessary. Here I shall read Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28. And I see a typo here I'll have to correct later because I already have this posted on a website. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. That should actually be plenish or fill. It doesn't mean refill. And subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. All of those mandates and blessings must refer only to our race otherwise we're in trouble let's now read Genesis chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field grew before it. This is talking about a creation that had already been made, including where Adam is described. For the Lord God, Yahweh God, had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground, and Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I probably should have cited verse 4, where it said, 
These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And there was not a man to till the ground. When was this man made? This man was made, as we read in verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. Referring to the age, those first five days, those first five days of creation, those first six days of creation. They're all being lumped together here in Genesis 2-4 into one day because that word day really means an age, a time, in the time when God made these things, the earth and the heavens and the plant and it was all there the pl every plant of the field it was all there and every herb of the field it was all there they're not being recreated again here in Genesis chapter 2 but if Adam if you think Adam is being created freshly here a new man is being created here in Genesis chapter 2 if you think the Bible doesn't repeat itself then you better think that there was a new heaven, a new earth, and new plants, and new herbs created here as well. Notice in Genesis chapter 2, in verses 5 through 8, where Adam is, the, the, the creation of Adam is described. Notice that there is nothing about likeness, or image, or dominion over the earth. There is nothing about likeness or image or dominion over the earth in Genesis chapter 2. If the Adamic man is in the likeness and image of God, and if the Adamic man is to have dominion over the earth, he must be that same chapter 1 Adamic man. Otherwise, we should only be farmers and serve as slaves to the other races who were given that dominion. This is the utter foolishness of the 6th and 8th day creation clowns. They are clowns. Genesis chapter 5 proves the assertion that the Genesis chapter 2 Adam is the same as that described in Genesis chapter 1. From Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 to 3. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, the word for Adam... In the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam. In the day when they were created, and Adam lived a hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. Now with this it should be obvious that if one wants to believe that the Genesis 2 Adam is different than that of Genesis chapter 1. Then the Genesis 5 Adam must also be different, as it too must also be describing a new day that God created man. So if there was an eighth day creation, there also must have been a ninth day creation. Where does the stupidity end? The stupidity ends only here, in the understanding that there was only one Adamic man, one race created by Yahweh, 
and that is our white race. All the other so-called races are sin. They are bastards. They resulted from the falling of the angels. And they are the branches on that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which did not come from God. That is why, in the end, all of the goat nations share the same fate as the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, as Christ himself professes in Matthew chapter 25. There is only one race created in scripture, the Adamic race, the white Adamic race, and that's described in Genesis 1, and it's described slightly differently in Genesis 5, and it's described in a little more detail in Genesis chapter 2. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.